This morning we have been singing about the impossibilities that God can bring forth and overcome. And so today we're going to talk about uh, taking inventory of those. We just started a conversation, a series of them uh, last week called Taking Inventory. It is that time of year where we uh, look past in, the, in 2018 and looking forward to 2019 and saying, let's take inventory of our lives. We do that on a number of levels, don't we? We do it at, at, sometimes at a financial level. Sometimes we do it on a family level. Sometimes we do it as a, in a work level, our employment. We do it as a career. Sometimes we do it in friendships. Sometimes we do it in, in all different kinds of ways, and it's healthy to take inventory spiritually. So uh, we begin this conversation um, with an experience I had about taking inventory. So when we first planted this church, there were many, uh, there were most of us, uh, we said, hey, we're, we're not going to take a salary. We're going to begin by vocational. Our church is not in debt. We are over 12 years old. We've never had a, a penny of debt. Thank God for that. And, um, and so, all right, you guys have an awesome week. Let's end on a high note. Just kidding. Why not? So, uh, but in order to do that, you know, we were willing to take jobs. So I was a substitute teacher, um, and then I checked myself into rehab after that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so uh, one of those jobs, we have a family in our church, still in our church from, from day one. She was a manager at the Pottery Barn down at Southgate Mall. And uh, it came around Christmas time, and she knew I was just trying to get everything I could. She goes, hey, I've got an opportunity if you'd like to work at the Pottery Barn. I saw myself you know, instantly in my mind, sure, I'd be on the floor, you know, selling stuff. She goes, it's a, it's a stock boy in the back. And so, you know, I, you know, ate humble pie and said, well, sure, I'll, I'll work. And I worked with, you know, the 17-year-olds, and we, had, we were back there. And I don't know if you know how it works. I never knew. You walk into Pottery Barn, you say, I like that lamp. And I think I'd like to buy it. And so the, you know, the finely dressed salesperson goes back and into the room with less finely dressed people like myself. And uh, they give you a number and a code, and then you run uh, down to the shelves. And in the back, it's just you know, two by fours and unpainted drywall, and it does not look anything like it looks out front. And uh, these, these shelves, they go, oh, I'm going to say 15, 20 feet high in the back. Just they're, they're enormous. You, uh, you have to kind of memorize where things are. Here are the lamps and here's you know, the pottery, et cetera. And then you were, you were told, here's how you're, you're not allowed to climb the shelves. Um, and then we all did it. You know, we were supposed to get a ladder out and then you'll go up the ladder. But the shelves were close enough that you could put one foot on one shelf and then you could put the other foot on the, the, the next shelf up and then you just kind of like Spider-Man, you go to the top, which, you know, there was a little liability, you know, involved there for them, I'm sure. And then you would get the, you would get the item. Well, the higher you went, the heavier the item, the more difficult it was, right? And so you would find ways you know, to get the, the item, the lamp, and put it on the next one and come down, put it on the next one, come down, put it on the next one, come down. So that was all well and good and, you know, got a lot of exercise, made a lot of friends, had, you know, it was fun. But there was one shelf at the very top. If you walked in and you said, I want the love seat, I, I, want, I want the, you know, the, the nice big chair that they sell, that was forbidden for any of us because it was impossible. 
And there was only one guy. His name was Mitch. Mitch has since passed, passed away. But Mitch was just, man, he was like a monkey man. He just had muscles. He could climb just like crazy. And, and Mitch would miraculously get up there, and he would sometimes ask for assistance. But Mitch could do the impossible, what we couldn't do. Here's the question I'm going to pose to you as we begin this morning. As you take inventory of your shelves coming in in 2019, what big, massive furniture do you have, if any, on your shelves? In other words, what impossibilities are you embracing, if any, that you are absolutely in the need of trusting God who can only climb that high because you know you can't? Oftentimes we look at the scripture and we look at individuals, Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and all, you know, just on down the line. And when you look at any of their stories, every time God asked them to do something, it was impossible. It was impossible for Sarah at her age to have a baby. It was impossible for Joshua to tear down the walls of Jericho. It was impossible for Nehemiah to build up the walls of Jerusalem. It was impossible to think that God would flood the earth and Noah had to build an an ark, a, a, a structure that could take every living creature in in pairs. It was impossible for Peter who uh, knew the, the characteristics of water, to walk on water. It was impossible for Jonah to think that Nineveh could be turned around. It was impossible for Gideon to reduce his army to 300 and fight against an army that was uncountable, the Bible says. It was impossible for a young woman named Mary who had never had relationships with a man to bring forth the Son of God in the form of a baby. I mean, just pick one. And so when we look at these stories, they're not fairy tales. They're real examples because God is real and God asks us to do impossible things. I want to venture to say to you that if we're not willing to lean forward into the impossibilities that God puts in front of us, then our life and our faith will grow stale. We could pick every, any story and literally every story in the Bible. Today I've landed in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at Moses' first intersection with God. Many of you have known it. Many of you have heard this. Many of you have read it for years and years. Some of you this may be new to. I'll give you a little bit of backdrop. At this intersection in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is 80 years old. That is 8-0, not 1-8. 80 years old. That's our first improbability when you look at this story. I know people in this congregation who are 80 and they're going full steam. I also live in a neighborhood of people that are 80 and that's all they've given up on life, to be honest with you. They've, quote unquote, done it all, seen it all, experienced it all. And I think I look in the Bible and say, God, there is no age limit for God. There is, no, there is no limit where God says, hey, well, I guess we're done with that. You know, you went on a mission trip, you know, 53 years ago, so you're, you're good to go. That's not how God works. 
And so Moses is 80 years old. His life is neatly divided into three chunks of 40 years. For the first 40 years, he was well-educated. He grew up in an Egyptian palace. There's a story of how he got there. No time for it today. But when he, he became a passion for his people who were imprisoned by the people that he lived with. He was, he was uh, living in this palace. He looks out. He, day after day, he sees how they were beaten, how they were oppressed, how they were enslaved. He goes out and he tries to do something about it. Didn't choose the right way, but he cho- chose to do something about it. And he, he killed a man because he was so passionate about the way that he, that he was abusing, this man was abusing his own people. And uh, he, he kind of was busted and, and uh, he was found out. And therefore he shelved himself. He shelved himself to the manageable bite-sized pieces of life. I'm going to say that if we were to entitle the next chapter of Moses' life, the second chunk of 40 years, it would be entitled, Boring. (laughs) Nothing exciting going on in the next 40 years. And then in the last 40 years, when he's 80 years old, he encounters God, and his life changed considerably. We begin to read in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Moses is 80 years old. Now Moses was tending the flock. He had been tending the flock for four decades, for 40 years. He was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now how do I know his life was boring? Well, I've seen goat herders, to be honest with you. I've seen them. There's nothing too exciting about goats. If it, you know, he were out there trying to wrangle in some you know, stallions or something like that, okay, maybe that's a little exciting. But he's really, he's prodding goats, maybe a few sheep in there, probably this part of the world, more, more goats than sheep, and he's out there prodding goats. He's working for his wife, dad. So everything was extremely manageable, and we're told that he was on the backside of the desert, which the literal translation is, he was behind the desert. I would say to you that his life was behind the desert. There was, no, there was nothing exciting. He wasn't on the front line. There was nothing challenging. There, you know, maybe a goat once in a while got loose and he had to go chase after it. He was working for his father-in-law, very safe relationship, and everything about his life was predictable and manageable, and there was nothing exciting about it. Moses had resigned himself to live the rest of his life in a manageable, bite-sized lifestyle in a way that he would have just gone out into the sunset with nothing exciting happening. And then he came to this place called Horeb, which literally means dryness. Of course it did, because God looks at our life so much of what God does and how God interacts with us, by the way, is, 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 is through compassion. I have two boys at home. Do I want their lives, do the rest of their lives to be boring? Of course not. Uh, you know, one, we're really very seriously considering a, a pilot school for him. Uh, you know, if I were to say, hey, there's a job that has a bit of risk to it, that would be a job that has some risk to it. But he's super into it, and, he, and we're, we're hey, let's just pursue, pursue that and see where it's going. Why? Because I love him. 
Why would I want his life to be just like, why do you box in your life, make sure everything is insured, make sure everything is predictable, make sure everything is manageable, and live the rest of your life, 70, 80 years of boredom? That would be pretty unloving for me. God looks at Moses, and here's a guy that he loves and says, man, I can't stand it no more. I can't stand to watch him prodding those goats and this man working for his wife's dad and everything is so neat and clean because that's it. And Moses says that he, because Moses is writing this, by the way, in Exodus chapter three, he says he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He didn't know it was the mountain of God. How did he know it was the mountain of God? Because Moses is writing retrospectively. In other words, he's not, you know, taking a journal as things are going like, whoa, I've come to, 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 the, to the mountain of God. He didn't know that. He's writing, in, in, you know, of past events when he's actually penning these words, and now he knew it was the mountain of God. What I would challenge you with, unless we come to Horeb, with the, the place where he's saying, you know, my life is dry, Spiritually speaking, now maybe you're a danger junkie. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about bungee jumping or you know martial arts or any of that stuff. I'm talking about spiritually, is your life manageable? Is it all about coming to church? Is it all about singing songs, getting a message and going home? That's not God's intention. He loves you too much to let you live the rest of your life in that spiritually manageable, bite-sized lifestyle. And so God looks down and he says, This is where you find the intersection. Life changes here, and then God sends him a message. You remember this this bush caught on fire, and and it wasn't going out like most bushes do, and the flame kept going. It attracted Moses. He's like, I got to check this out. And then God begins to speak to him. Now, I I want you to see something very interesting here. So often, if I say, where do you find the Gospels? You'd say we find it in the New Testament. We find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the guys that wrote the, the, the gospel story. But I would propose to you that the God of the New Testament is not a new God. It is the same God. The God of the New Testament had a heart for, for people and their impossibilities. And likewise, the God of the Old Testament is the very same what we're about to read here and what God says to Moses is the distinctive difference between Christianity and every other faith on the planet. This is not a light difference. This is not a difference where we're throwing rocks and judging other faiths. It's not. But it is a distinctive difference that we as followers of Christ, if indeed you are a follower of Christ, It's a distinctive difference than every other faith on the planet. Now watch this, Exodus chapter three and verse seven. God speaks to Moses. I have indeed seen the misery of the people, of my people in Egypt. That's where they were enslaved. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. Now, what do you think they were crying out to God? We cannot help ourselves. We are in an impossible scenario. How does a slave find freedom? How does a slave in this kind of a regime, a cruel regime, how do they find freedom? They can't is the answer. And so they were crying out to God 
and there was a massive piece of furniture on the top shelf that they couldn't even dream of reaching. This is how people view themselves when they think of God. There is no way that God could forgive me. There's no way that with all the junk I have in my life that I can reach that top shelf. And then the gospel comes, the good news comes. So God says, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptian to bring them up. This is the distinctive difference of Christianity. It is not that we are trying to get good enough in order to reach and earn a position with God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came down so that we can come up. There it is in Exodus, the third book, uh, the second book of the Bible. I find that rather amazing. Obviously more amazing than you do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that a position with God was like a massive piece of furniture on the top shelf that no one could reach. Understanding that, God said, let me come down to you in the form of Jesus Christ. And he took on our sins and he freed us from a position that no person, no human being no matter how good, no matter how bad, no matter what religion, could free themselves. And he says, I'm coming down so that you can come up. I find that marvelous that we find it in, in this early in the Bible. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, the uh, Perizzites, the uh, Hivites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, and there are a lot of sites in there. <laughs> and verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now, let's say you're Moses. This is the guy that killed somebody because he was so upset about the slavery 40 years ago. What do you think Moses' reaction would be in this moment? <laughs> This is awesome. This is what I've been waiting for. Here comes the Calvary. Here comes the rescue. I can't wait. I'm going to have a front row seat. Pop the popcorn. I just can't wait for God to come in and just let them have it and rescue my people. I, I got a VIP seat. Life is amazing. And then God throws in this next sentence in the next verse. So now, Moses, go. I'm sending you. You to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Dang it. <laughs> Have you ever noticed it's, it's a lot more fun to watch people do something epic than actually be called to do it yourself? In that moment, he, his exhilaration turned to absolute fear. He came up, as most of you know, that with these, uh, these uh, reasons why he couldn't. I don't have the authority. On whose authority am I going? I don't have the authority. I'd like to check your credentials, God, to see if your authority. I'm not quite sure. He gave excuses of inadequacy. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the background. Uh, you know, pick my brother Aaron. I, I can't do it. And these are the excuses that often come to bear on us. I want to, make, I want to go back to, if we can come back to that verse, I want you, as a side note, I find this 
very important. God says, I'm going to take my people out of Egypt and I'm going to take them uh, into the promised land, right? But in verse 10, I want you to see that God didn't break a promise. He did not say, Moses, I'm asking you to take them out and I'm asking you to bring them in because if you know the story, he didn't get to bring them in. In verse 10, he says, I'm going, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That was it. He did not promise Moses that, that I'm going to, that was impossible enough, but he didn't say, I'm going to have you bring them in. When God gives us an impossibility, when God gives us something so epic to do, he can and will follow up. He's not just blowing smoke. And so I want you to take inventory today. And I think this requires a, a bit of muscle, a bit of, uh, you know, inner muscle to think, what is it in 2019 that would, be, that would seem so impossible for me to do? Let me go a step further because some of you may say, you know, I've always wanted to buy a home. I've never bought a home. Some of you may say, hey, we'd like to have children. Some of you like, boy, I, I wanted to get married. Some of you may say, hey, I wanted to retire. Those are all good. And I, and I would count those in. I don't discount them. But because we're a spiritual community and, you, and we talk about everyday stuff all through our everyday, I want to funnel our attention to spiritual things. And so I want to, I want to uh, narrow the challenge. In 2019, is there something that you perceive that God may be calling you to that you think, oh, that would be impossible? That would just be impossible. For some of you, it may be, hey, I, yeah, I'm new to church. I, I, man, for me to, to take a next step to get involved in community and be part of a, a family of God, wow, I, I can't even envision what that would be like. For some of you, it may be spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's like, man, I have never read the Bible from cover to cover. I've never fasted. I've never uh, prayed for an extended amount of time. I've never shared my faith with another individual. I was reading last night the percentage of Christians in America who have shared their faith with another person so desperately in need of the gospel is 2%. 2% of those that love to sing about uh, uh, Christ and salvation, and we've been the recipients of it, only 2%. Maybe that would be that impossibility. Man, I would, I'd like to share... And maybe you would say, okay, in 2019, I'm going to share uh, my faith with one person. Why not press into God and say, would you reveal to me? Maybe it's 10 people. Maybe it's one person a week. Maybe it's one person a month. Maybe whatever that thing is, I'm not going to fill in your blank. You have to let God. But can I encourage you and prod you? Instead of prodding goats, let's prod ourselves. <laughs> Moses became a people prodder to say, think bigger. And what would God have you do? So you're like, okay, I'm following, I'm tracking. But let me give you some encouraging words as to how you might find yourself running towards impossibilities rather than running from impossibilities and running uh, toward, those, toward a manageable life, a manageable life. There, there have been people in my life, by the way, and my mom would be at the top of the list. 
when I finished my first school, I was in music, my mom said, here, here, I've just been doing some reading, and here are some schools that I would ask you to consider. I would have never considered these schools. These were the Juilliards and the New Englands and the Peabody's and the Eastman's. If you don't know those schools, those are the Harvard's and the Yale's of music school. I would have never done that. In fact, we had a lot of tension because I was holding tight to the manageable, what I felt like I could get into. Well, I could probably get into the University of Virginia. I could get, and mom said, no, you go higher than that. And she prodded and prodded and prodded. And even against my will, she said, hey, we're getting on a car and we're driving all the way up the East Coast, all the way to Massachusetts, all through Ohio. And she took me on a tour because she was prodding me toward greater things because she loved me deeply and she wanted me to have a life of opportunity and excitement. God is looking at us and saying, don't settle for what you think is manageable but go higher. So let's take a look at some of the things that Moses says, and we're going to frame this conversation by what has become the most vivid verse for me in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and verse 21. I have seen this verse come alive in my life personally and in our church over the last two years uh, like I never would have expected. It is, it is nestled in this book of Ephesians, and it's called a doxology. It's kind of a, just a moment of praise is what it is. And so Paul, the writer, writes these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. We're going we're gonna to dissect this and use this as the catalyst to perhaps inspire you, perhaps prod you to think larger than you would normally. So when we, so here's a few things to think about. When you're trying to live a life of impossibilities and push to that edge, I want to say to you that obstacles are inevitable, but obstacles are nothing to God. I'm going to say it again. Obstacles are inevitable. Many people give up right there. Well, I guess God wasn't in it. Just think about Moses. I mean, first day on the job, you know, things are going wrong. Well, forget it. You know, uh, I went to Pharaoh and he didn't say yes. Well, that, that's, not, that's not what you told me. Uh, so obstacles are inevitable, but obstacles are nothing to God. Uh, just a, a, uh, a clip, an excerpt from the, the, cha- the passage that we just read. Now to him who is able. Can you say that out loud with me together? Now to him who is able. Are you able? No. No, I'm able to do a lot of things, but I'm not Mitch. I can't climb to that top shelf. Because those, those sofas, those love seats, I don't know how much they weigh. They, they weigh a lot more than old Steve-O can get down from the shelves. And so God says, I know that you faced obstacles to the impossibilities I've laid on your heart. When we look at the story of Moses, there are two, there are two types of obstacles. There's external and there's internal. 
There's things, there's scenarios and people outside of us, and then there's that internal sense of can't do it. So for example, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, God said, I know. I'm not unaware of the obstacles. God is never caught off guard. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. I know he's not going to do that unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will be performing uh, among them. After that, after I take care of it, after I take care of the obstacle that looks so insurmountable to you, after that, then he'll let you go. You see, we look at that. We look at the king of, of Egypt and think, no way. And God says, not, not a problem. Now, here's, you think, okay, that's the Bible story. I get it. But I want you to marvel at the detail of God. When he says, I know the king of Egypt, I know what makes him tick, here's something truly marvelous. So God says, let me show you a few, uh, a few cards in my hand. So you remember, he, Moses had a stick in his, in his, in his, uh, in his life, uh, in his uh, hand, in his life too. And, and he was just, you know, he, that's what he used to prod the goats. You remember what Moses was asked to do? Throw it down, and it became a what? A snake. And then he was to take the end of the snake, not really smart, uh, take the end of the snake and pick it back up, right? Second thing was, hey, put your hand in, bring it out. There was leprosy, right? Incurable. The third thing, he says, watch, watch this. I'm going to take the Nile. I'm going to turn it to blood. So here's how specific God is. So some of you know I was in Egypt uh, in November, and I, I want to show you a map which goes counter to anything that we would think. So northern Egypt is called lower Egypt, and southern Egypt is called upper Egypt. That makes a lot of sense. It's about altitude. So the Nile is running from a higher location down to a lower location. So when it actually empties into the delta there, it comes into the delta, it's actually lower. That's why they call it lower, okay? And I'm showing you this because Moses was operating mainly, the story's taking place mainly up in, uh, <laughs> up in lower Egypt. <laughs> when you're there and you're in Egypt, you see the carvings, you know, uh, that are all over every tomb and every, you know, Pharaoh's mask, etc. And in that day, there were, there were, there, it was kind of uh, the, the king was like, uh, when they weren't divided, the king of two Egypts is what they called, lower and upper Egypt. Both lower and upper Egypt had their own animal that signified protection. On upper Egypt, it, on, which is southern for us, it was the vulture. And on the upper side, which would be lower Egypt where uh, Moses was, it was the cobra. So when you see a Pharaoh's mask, you'll see the cobra in the center, and you'll see the vulture to the left. It's kind of hard to see that's a vulture. But you see this symbology on everything. So when you're dealing with upper, uh, uh, the, the part that, uh, that Moses was in Egypt, you see the cobra on everything because that was their protector. Now God comes along and says, I know exactly what will get his attention. I will turn that stick of yours into the thing that they think protects them. Wow. You see how God works? Wow. I will send, I will 
take something so impossibly incurable like leprosy, and right before her eyes, right before his eyes, they leprosy freaked everybody out. I said, hey, Bill, how's it going? You know how some people in church, they hug you and say, hey, how's your week? And right after the hug, like, I'm so sick. I'm like, I'll kill you. <laughs> That'd be like me saying, hey, give me your hand. I got leprosy. Good to see you, Bill. I mean, everybody would freak out. So because it was so impossibly incurable. The Nile was their very source of life. This was not just random miracles. God, listen, is in tune with every bandwidth in this, in this room right here. He is in tune with every nuance of your mind and your heart. Those things are like, oh my gosh, does God know about this? I've had plenty of moments. God must be offended every day of his life by us. God said, not only do I know it, but I am able, I am able to take care of them. Then there's the internal obstacles. Moses said in Exodus 4 and verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, his assessment that Moses was powerful in speech. Hmm. Is that a controversy in the Bible? No. That was Moses' assessment of himself. How many of you, how many of us have this thing that we could do for the kingdom. And God has an immeasurably different assessment than you do. There are so many times I think that God, if he could whisper in our ear, he'd say, no, that's not right. That film that you've created in your mind, that you're inadequate, you can't, love someone, you can't share with someone, you can't be transparent, you can't do whatever the thing that God is calling you to do. I can't do it. And God said, oh, that's not even remotely true. Why? Because I am able, not you. Didn't ask you to do it. And when God, when Moses obeyed him, he became a powerful speaker. He said, I'm slow of speech. The Lord said, hey, who gave you your mouth? Who makes the deaf or mute? Who gives him sight, makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord, now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. The obstacles that we see are nothing to God, internal or external. It allows us to say, all right, I can run toward the impossibility rather than run from it. Here's the second thing. I think sometimes we, we only think, boy, I know I do, in terms of human capacity rather than God capacity. We as human beings operate on what we know. I like to operate on what I know. I'm not a super safe person, but I'm not a super high risk person either. But I do like to operate on what I know. How about you? How many of you have packed your bags for a two-week vacation Thrown your bags up in the car and just started driving. I'm really interested. Anybody in here that did? 
Yes, get out. Just kidding. <laughs> See, now that's a high-risk person. That's a cool, that, that, is a, that is super cool. I'm too scaredy cat to do that. <laughs> because I, I would start at least sneaking the GPS on my phone, like, where am I going? I like to know where I'm staying. I like to know, you know, all, all those things. I want to know how many bedrooms, you know, the places, God, how many beds, you know, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes we limit ourselves by this thinking of human capacity. I can only witness to one person this year. God's like, really? That's not God capacity. That's not my measurement. See, I'm, re- I'm reminded back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, now him who is able to do, say it with me, immeasurably more than we all could ask or imagine. So wherever you find your imagine, wherever you say, hey, here's, here, man, I could dream of that. God says, cool, now we're at the beginning, not the end. This is where, where we could ask, the, man, this, what can I ask? God, would you allow me to do this in 2019? God said, great, that's the beginning. That's, your, that's where your human capacity is. And now I'm, I'm asking you to do more than that. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse, uh, or Genesis chapter uh, 18, sorry, in verse 14, you remember the intersection between Abraham and his wife, Sarah. She's beyond her age to give birth. And God says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the point in time next year. And Sarah, she'll have a son way beyond your capacity. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, Moses said to God, who, who am I going to say sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In other words, he is saying, I am the eternal God with no boundaries. Perhaps your dream is too small. Finally, I want to say this to you. Everything rests on the power of God. And the power of God that is available to us today, this is where it differs than the than what was happening in the Old Testament. Watch this. At every turn, God was saying to Moses, I am with you. I will go before you. I am, I'm right there by your side. I will help you in what to say. But there is something so marvelous that it is difficult for us to wrap our human minds around. And here it is. What's the big deal that Jesus came back from the dead? Well, we would think, well, because Christ came back from the dead, it gives us hope that death is not the end. So very profoundly true. But it's like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. If Christ were in the grave, there were certain things that could not happen right now. But don't you remember, at the end of Christ's life, Jesus said, I have to go through death so that other things can happen, greater things can happen. I have to suffer death and come back from the dead so that now I've got the power of distribution to empower you, not by being only with you, but in you, and it's vastly different. Christ says, you are the temples of the Holy Spirit. There is no human being that can wrap their mind around that. If you're thinking, man, I don't get it. Neither do I. 
We can only experience it and, and have the life of Christ inside of us. Listen, if Christ were laying in a coffin somewhere in the Middle East, then we would not have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Now that Christ has died, come back from the grave, he can come and says, you remember he said to the disciples, wait, don't go anywhere until the power of the Spirit of God comes within you and then you will be able to see that it is the power of God that changes things and brings impossibilities to possibilities. That's, five, that's why in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we read this, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all can ask or imagine, according to his power, say it with me, that is at work within us. Moses did not have that. The Bible says this is that same power, that the same voltage that raised Christ from the dead that is miraculously at your disposal constantly. Constantly. Let me end with this thought. If you, if we live our lives in manageable bite-sized pieces, then, then most likely you will take the credit for what you do. I do. I'm going to paint a fence. I paint the fence. I stand back and I'm like, fence looks great. Why? Because the fence is only on the second shelf. I can reach that shelf. It is only when we put ourselves in the path of impossibilities that we realize that only God could do what he just did. And when only God could do what he just did, most of us are smart enough to say, okay, I'm giving him the credit because I couldn't reach that top shelf. Make sense? So this ends with something critical. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The more we put ourselves in the path of impossibilities, the more we give glory to God, the more exciting life we live, and the more we can see God at work. Happy New Year. Amen. Amen. This, is the, this is the life that God is calling us to in 2019. Take an inventory. Have you even looked at that top shelf? Or has someone in your life convinced you that you're only a two-shelf person? I mean, a lot of people, because of their dad, their uncle, their mother, they only see themselves as a two-level person. And God says, that's not how I see you. Some people have depended on themselves so much that God would say, depend on me. Dream God-sized dreams. Let me work through your life with impossibilities and trust me. And when you trust me, I can work greater things and you'll give me the glory. The end all of every human being on earth is to give God the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are today, God. 
a God of impossibilities. And we've sung it, we enjoy it, we love the epic feel of it. And then like Moses, you come and ring our doorbell. And you say, I'm, I'm calling you to live in the path of impossibilities. And then sometimes obstacles that seem so visible, so tangible, so real, so insurmountable. They just shut us down. There's some people in this room that have, like Moses, perhaps have been shut down for years. You don't know my past. Perhaps you're, you've, somehow someone has gotten into the bandwidth of your thinking and you're only a two-level person. Perhaps you're safe. You like safeness. And God calls each of us today to depend completely on him, to say, God, I, I only have so much capacity, so I'm here to take inventory. What are you calling me to in 2019? You may not be able to figure out in these next two minutes in prayer, but, I, but God may challenge you today, this afternoon, this week, to find some inventory time. 2019 could look so incredibly different for you. Don't be afraid of the hardness, the difficulty, the sacrifice. If you really want to see God move, if you really want to live on that edge, fall on Him, trust Him. It is His power within us. If you find yourself gasping spiritually, drowning, God says, I am, I am the rescuer. Perhaps you've come today and you think, I, that's me. I've tried religion, I've tried to be good, and yet I sense, I sense a distance between me and God, a gap. And every day of my life, I hope I'm good enough. And God says, I have come to rescue you. I've come to the cross. I've come to absorb your sin. I've come to hug you. I've come to embrace you. I've come to love you. It is not your effort. It is my love, my grace that envelops you. Oh, would you fall on him today? Would you trust him today? Would you give your heart today? Would you say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. I want to follow you, to love you, to have a relationship with you. Would you say to him today, God, you know my brokenness. There's no, there's no uh, need to hide it, God. You see my soul. I'm a sinner. I have mistakes. Would you forgive me in Christ? Oh, listen. Listen to me. God has been waiting and waiting and waiting to have a relationship with you. It is a decision of faith away, not a decision of, of being good enough. Just say to him now, Christ, I need you.
Forgive me, Christ. Come live in me, this power within me, that I might live for you. Father, for all of us, what impossibilities are you calling us to? We open ourselves up, God, to you to take inventory with us, to show us these things so that we can lead the life that you have designed and appointed us to live. So we end this day, as Paul wrote, to you be the glory, God. To you be the glory. Because you are the God who can reach that upper shelf. So we thank you, Father, for who you are today and who you are in our life. In Jesus' name.